0: Well, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 is where we are in our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of God's Word. As we look into Romans, I want to remind you where we were last week. The passage there at the beginning of Romans chapter 11 answers the question as to whether or not God has rejected His people, and of course the answer to that is definitely not, and I have Psalm 94 verse 14 here for you as a reminder of that theme from last week. The Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. This is good news not only for Israel, but also good news for us. For we have been incorporated into God's covenants of promise. We've become God's people as well through our connection with Jesus Christ, the true Israelite. Now... As we consider this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 24 in Romans chapter 11 and I've got a selection of a few verses here that are going to introduce the theme of this text or at least one of the big ideas that I hope for us to to draw out from God's Word this morning and that is on the subject of humility. We started to look into this subject last week that our place as Gentiles is that we are the Johnny-come-lately here in God's work and that we are supposed to be humble towards the people of Israel and not become arrogant. And this spiritual humility is something that we not only exercise towards the people of Israel, but it's something that is essential to Christian character in all aspects and in our relationship with everyone that we meet. And here Peter reminds us of that humility in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, when he wrote that we are to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. In the church... If we have this mindset, if we have this humility, this servant's heart towards one another, as we read about in our scripture reading in Philippians chapter 2, then we will be able to continue on with the joy and the unity that God gives us in Christ. We have experienced so much of, and we are so blessed. And then Peter quotes from the Old Testament and says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That is a timeless spiritual principle, one that we must never, ever lose sight of. A second passage along the same lines is found in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, where God is speaking, and Isaiah is recording the voice of God to Israel, and he says, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So God is so exalted, so mighty, the creator of all, but... The Lord declares this This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God is not looking for mighty people in order to have fellowship with because his greatness is so exalted that he doesn't need any great people around him in order for him to to feel great about himself. And so, God's greatness is so great that he wants to gather around himself the humble. He wants to gather around himself the contrite and those who tremble at his word. Then a third verse driving this theme home into our hearts here. Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15, very similar. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. And so each one of us here now has to ask ourselves that question Am I lowly in heart? Am I contrite in spirit? Do I tremble at the word of God? And am I humbling myself towards one another? That is an important question to ask in our homes, in our churches, in our work. Everywhere we go, are we manifesting the spirit that God is looking for and that he blesses? Unfortunately, there have been times in the past where Christians have failed to do so. Not too long ago, we were celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, celebrating the work that God had done through men like Martin Luther. And though it's kind of small print, I tried to fit as much of it up there as I could I have for our consideration in the introduction today a a tragedy at the end of Martin Luther's life and we have to remember that our heroes will often disappoint us and Martin Luther as heroic as he is and as much as I am thankful and indebted to the work of God through him we don't cover up the flaws of the men of God who have gone before us as we pray for our nation God mend her every flaw so we pray for the church and for its leaders that God will mend their every flaw for all men are flawed and you can expect to be disappointed when you look at men. Martin Luther's perhaps greatest blemish in his life was towards the end of his career, which is a warning to all of us. Written in 1543, three years before his death, Martin Luther published a work about the Jewish people entitled On the Jews and Their Lies. In this treatise, he recommends that the government of Germany and the German people treat the Jewish people thus. What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? First, to set fire to their synagogues or schools. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom and so that God might see that we are Christians. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught to be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of death. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews for they have no business in the countryside. Sixth, I advise that usury be prohibited to them. And that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them. Seventh, I recommend putting a flail or an axe or a hoe or a spade or a distaff or a spindle into the hands of young strong Jews and Jewesses and let them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow. But if we are afraid that they might harm us, our wives, children, servants, or cattle, then let us emulate the common sense of other nations, such as France, Spain, and Bohemia, and eject them forever from our country. This would be just the opposite of showing that we are Christians. The state church was a horrible idea that Luther never corrected, but himself took advantage of and abused. And it was to later generations of Christians that we are thankful that they rediscovered within Scripture the, the principle that the church is not supposed to enforce God's law upon the population, but that the church and the government are supposed to be separate, and that we are not to be putting heretics to death. This is in accordance with the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are kind to those who oppose us, that we patiently instruct those who do not follow our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we show every consideration for all men. The history of the church in relationship to the Jewish people is not always good, as we have just demonstrated. This goes back to the very earliest period in the church, and that is why Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave us Romans 9 through 11, so that we, as those who have been chosen by God to receive the blessings of the promises of the covenants of Scripture, specifically the Abrahamic covenant, that we may not become arrogant against the Jewish people and begin to mistreat them because of the blessings that God has shown towards us. If this was not a real threat, then Martin Luther never would have written what he said. Irenaeus would have never spoken the words that he spoke against the Jewish people. And we would not have the long history of otherwise good Christian teachers being very wrong on God's love for the Jewish people. That's why Romans chapters 9 through 11 are still abidingly important and significant. Let's take a look at the text today. Romans chapter 11, our outline, is going to be covering verses 13 through 24, and our title is Humility for the Gentiles. Us Gentiles, we need to be humble about our spiritual status and position because it is given to us by grace, and it is not something that has been earned and it is not something that makes us better than anyone else who is in the world. Our three points on the outline in verses 13 through 15, we'll see how our salvation, Gentile salvation, is supposed to lead to Jewish salvation. Then we'll take a look at the main illustration that Paul uses, the root and the branches, and how he develops that in verses 17 through 24, and how he has cut off some of the natural branches and has grafted in some of us unnatural branches into the olive tree let's go ahead and read the text then you can follow along in your bibles since verses 13 to 14 and 15 really are an extension an expansion on verses 11 through 12 let's go ahead and pick it up there in verses 11 and 12 and we'll read down through verse 24 so i ask did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others... And now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So that's our text. A lot of great things in here. We're going to see if we can get through it in the next 40 minutes or so. So, Paul identifies himself as the apostle to the Gentiles This is an identification that we see in a number of places in the New Testament in his calling to ministry in Acts chapter 9 and his recounting of that call to ministry in Acts chapter 26. He writes about it in Galatians chapter 2 that Peter was chosen as the apostle to the Jews and that he was sent as the apostle to the Gentiles. So this is a common theme and that's why Paul is writing to this largely Gentile church here in Rome Because he feels a responsibility, he feels a burden for their spiritual health and their spiritual life. And he wants to go and reach others who have not yet heard the gospel as he's planning his trip to Spain. But don't think that Paul doesn't have an eye towards the Jewish people. That everywhere Paul has gone, he goes first to the synagogue that is in that community and in that town and preaches the good news of Jesus to the Jews who had not yet heard and so Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles with an eye on the Jews. And he's hoping that through his ministry to the Gentiles and through extending the blessings of God's promises to Abraham to the nations, that some of his Jewish brethren will see what is happening and will repent and be saved. That's why he starts off this section there, wanting to make Israel jealous as he had already spoken about previously in verse 11, and also in the previous chapter, chapter 10, verse 19. Now, some are hoping to be saved now. And Paul knows that in the future, the fullness of the Jewish people are going to be saved. Look at that in verse 12. He wants to move some of them to jealousy and have them get saved. But back in verse 12, he said, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? There's a full inclusion of the Jewish people that God has promised, and that we are still waiting to see. That God has a plan, he has a purpose, he has a time where the Jewish people as a whole are going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they're going to turn to Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah their savior. So we're looking forward to that. Paul's looking forward to that. But in the meantime, he's hoping that his ministry is going to move some of them to salvation, a part, a remnant, as he has been talking about throughout chapters 10 and 11. Now, he reiterates how their inclusion, their full inclusion, is going to bring great blessing there in verses 15 and 16. Note especially verse 15, where he says, If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, when you're reading their rejection and their acceptance, there's two ways that people have read it, and you might be able to to have that same question as you read it. What does their rejection and their acceptance mean? Because it could be their rejection of Christ and their acceptance of Christ, or it could be God's rejection of them and God's acceptance of them. There's good arguments for both ways of reading it, and different people do take it one way. Now, when I read the text myself, it's hard for me to do it, but I read it as their acceptance by God and their rejection by God. And it's hard for me to do that because just in the previous lesson that we had last week, I was pounding the pulpit and saying, Israel is not rejected. Israel is not rejected. And now I'm saying, well, here Paul says they're rejected. And so, well, which one is it? Are they rejected or are they not rejected? Well, it's complicated, as many things are, right? And so you're not contradicting yourself if you are saying something in a different sense than what you were saying it before. So Paul, when he says the Jews are not rejected, he's saying their national election is not remitted. They are still nationally God's chosen people. But when he's talking about them being rejected, he's talking about most of the Jewish people not being personally saved, that they are rejected as regards to personal salvation, but they're still nationally elect. So there's the national election and the personal election. We got to keep those straight if we're going to make good sense of the text here. So when he talks about their rejection, the way I read it in the Greek, and I'm not an expert in Greek, but it's just the way that makes most sense to me, is that that means they are rejected by God and their acceptance means that they are being accepted by God. And when God accepts the Jewish people, what is this blessing that he hinted at back in verse 12? Well, he makes it more specific here by describing it as life from the dead. And while different interpreters will read different things into this phrase, life from the dead, I think it's pretty clear, and I've always thought it was pretty clear, that this is talking about physical resurrection. That's what we're talking about here. The same thing that Paul was talking about back in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verses 17 through 25. Just want to back up a couple of pages there, and you can't miss out on a chance to read from Romans chapter 8 because it's just such a glorious chapter. And there, Paul talks about this future hope, this future salvation. Yes, we have forgiveness. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit. Yes, we have fellowship with God. Yes, we've got all these spiritual blessings and treasures now, but the best is yet to come. And that full experience of salvation, one of the key aspects of that is the resurrection, life from the dead. Listen to the way that Paul describes it here, starting in Romans 8:17. He says, If we are children, and we are, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider And then it says, we know, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, it is in this hope, he says, that we are saved and hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Those are great words there. And I think that's what Paul has in mind when he says, what's going to happen? What is the blessing that the world is going to receive when the fullness of Israel turns to Jesus Christ and acknowledges him as the promised one? Well, that's life from the dead. That's the resurrection, the adoption day that we are looking forward to. So, great hope set in front of us. Set your mind on these things. Let's go on then to the illustration that Paul wants to expand upon. In verse 16, he actually gives us two metaphors, one briefly, and then the second one has a long expansion that is designed to teach us to be humble in our place in God's work of salvation. So, He starts off in verse 16 with the illustration of the first fruits of dough. He says there, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Let's talk about the dough here first. As Paul introduces this, he's pulling, of course, from the Old Testament law, and the passage that is in God's law about this offering of first fruits is in Numbers chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. Now, I just gave you one of those verses, but 18 through 21 is the whole context. We don't have time to go to every verse, so I'll just read it. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution. Like a contribution from the threshing floor, so shall you present it. So well, This is part of the offerings that were given to God, and God wanted the first fruits from their threshing floor, that's when they bring it in, but then also from the dough that they made. So there's more than one offering that's being given here. You not only give the initial part when you're harvesting, but then also when you're making the dough, you give the first fruits of that as well. This is a great law introducing us to wonderful thoughts, but Paul is using it as an illustration for Israel. That the first fruits that is offered to God in this illustration is the same as the root of the tree, the olive tree, and its branches in the second illustration. He gives us two metaphors that have the same parallel point. The dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. So here... There's a principle of holiness that is established in God's law, and that's important. We learn about holiness from God's law. The world doesn't have much of a concept of holiness, and we as Christians, we need to educate ourselves in what holiness is, and I highly recommend the reading of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy in order to ingrain in ourselves a concept of holiness when we live in a society where nothing is sacred. You've heard that before, is, is nothing sacred anymore, and that's the way it is in our society. Everything is not sacred. Everything is just secular. But the Bible imports into human cultures a correct idea of holiness, sanctity. And the principles of sanctity are many, and you can write books on it, but here the principle is the larger part of the harvest is sanctified by the giving of the first fruits, that you take part of it and make it holy unto God, well, that makes the rest of it share in that holy quality that the 10%, the tithe was given. So think about this. The money that you give to the Lord's work, that actually has a sanctifying effect on the rest of the income that you receive. Interesting principle there. If the first part of the thing is holy, the lump, then first fruits, then so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. That, that holiness is something that can be conveyed from the part to the whole. Important principle that Paul is going to establish and build upon. He does it also with the root and the branches, that if the root is holy, so are the branches. There's a transmission of holiness because of the organic connection between the part and the whole. This principle is interestingly applied in 1 Corinthians about children who are growing up in a family where one of the parents is a believer and the other parent is not a believer. And there's a certain holy status that is given to those children that are growing up in a mixed household, so to speak, that the Holiness of one parent is sanctifying the household in a sense. It's very interesting to look at these principles of holiness and how they apply to different situations in Scripture. But today, we're going to focus on how this principle applies to the root of Israel and the branches of Israel. That's what Paul wants to draw out from it in verses 17 to 24. So let's take a look at those. As we read... If some of the branches were broken off, so you have to figure out what's the root, what are the branches, who are the branches who are broken off, and who is this wild olive shoot that is grafted in among the others and is now sharing in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So the, the picture is of an olive tree, a cultivated olive tree, an olive tree that is actually used by the, the farmers, the, the agricultural part of the society. And now there was not only the cultivated olive trees, but there were wild olive trees. And the the wild olive trees really didn't produce much fruit at all. They were notoriously unfruitful. But the the cultivated olive trees, of course, is where they got all their olives, like in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so the olive tree is a picture in the Old Testament Just like the vineyard and just like other fruitful plants in the Old Testament, like Psalm 1 talks about how the one who trusts in the Lord is like a tree that is planted by streams of water and it bears its fruit in its season. Well, one of these trees that would be in mind would be the olive tree. The vineyard picture in Isaiah of how Israel was supposed to be fruitful and that's why God planted them in the land. So the olive tree is used that way in Jeremiah chapter 11 of Israel. And here Paul is using the olive tree as a picture of Israel and how it's supposed to be fruitful. Now the branches are the Israelites who are not producing fruit. The branches that get broken off are the Israelites who are not producing fruit. This is exactly in parallel with Jesus' illustration of the vine and the branches, and he talks about how the branches that don't bear fruit are cut off and thrown into the fire in John chapter 15. Here Paul is using the same illustration. And so the question is, who exactly are the roots of the tree, or what exactly is the root of the tree? Different people have different interpretations. It could be the patriarchs as the root of the branches of Israel. It could be the righteous remnant. Since Paul has been talking about the remnant and he's talking about how the root supports the Gentile branches that have been grafted in, maybe he's talking about the remnant of believing Israelites as the root of the tree and he's not looking at their whole history but he's just looking at their present status. Or maybe... He is identifying not a particular group of people as the root, but maybe the root of the tree are the covenants of promise themselves. Maybe the root is God's promises and his faithfulness to come through with his blessings. Or some people have even identified the root of the tree as Jesus Christ. As he said, you know, you are the branches, I am the vine. You get your, draw your life from the vine. Some people think, well, maybe the root here is jesus christ himself now out of those possibilities i like the idea that we're talking about the patriarchs extra biblical texts that come from this time period among jewish literature do identify the patriarchs as the root of the people of israel also in this chapter chapter 11 verse 28 a little bit further down he identifies that the jewish people though they are enemies for your sake As regards the gospel, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, the patriarchs. So I think here, if you're going to press Paul, if Paul was here and you asked him who exactly or what exactly is the root that you're talking about in this illustration, he would say, Well, I have in mind the patriarchs as the root of the tree. So that means the branches who are broken off, we've already mentioned, are the Jews who are hardened in their heart unbelieving, rejecting Jesus as Messiah. And then these wild olive branches, well, they are the ones who are saved Gentiles, genuine Christians who have been taken from the world and are now a part of God's saving plan and a part of God's people. So this brings up lots of questions for theologians because we have discussion and debate in the church I'm not going to spend too much time on this today. There's been other times i focused on this much more. But it would be an injustice to this passage and where we are not to at least address it a little bit. There are those who have the question, is there one people of God or are there two peoples of God? That is another way you could say, is Israel and the church distinct from one another or are they the same? Is the church the, the New Testament Israel? Is Israel the Old Testament church? How are we supposed to think of the relationship of God's nation, the nation of Israel, and the people who are saved in this present time, Jews and Gentiles, brought together in one body over the face of the earth? Is there one people of God or is there two people of God? And you could say, yes. Because there is one people of God in one sense, and there's two peoples of God in another sense. Because it depends upon what sense of the word people of God are you referring to. Now, if you're referring to the people whom God has saved and the people whom God has called and adopted and and brought into his family, well, yes, uh, the, the church is that people in this present time. The church are those who have been called by God to receive eternal life, to be a part of Christ, and to have an inheritance in his kingdom from the time of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church until the time that the church is taken to be with the Lord Jesus Christ at the rapture. That's the people of God, not in the sense that we are a nation. We are not a nation. What is the church? The church is a minority of people among all nations who come together and gather for building up in the faith and being a light in the dark world. We're not a nation. We're a group of people within a nation and we're among all nations. So, Don't think of people of God as being a nation. The nation of God is still the people of Israel. Their national election has not been revoked. Their national election never will be revoked. very important to understand the distinction there. And when you think of the church, you should not think just Gentiles. The church is not just Gentiles. Paul is a Jew. Peter was a Jew. The earliest Christians were Jews. There's still today a lot of Christian Jews. So don't think, well, church means Gentile. Uh, No, church doesn't mean Gentile. Church means Jew and Gentile together in one new man, one new creation of God. That's Ephesians chapter 2. And if we had time, we'd go to Ephesians 2 and do all of that theology. But we're going to go ahead and move on because that's not the main point here. The main point is humility for us Gentiles towards the Jewish people. And it's built on all of that doctrine of the church and Israel that we've just been talking about. But here, Paul's going to take us to the application, to the main point. And he says, okay, so you've got the people who are supposed to inherit the blessings and the promises of God. And some of those people have been cut off because of their unbelief. And then some people who were never a part of it and never really conceived as being a part of it, they've been brought in and grafted in. Now, for those of you that don't know a lot about botany, I'll give a very brief explanation of grafting. I've never done any grafting, but I've read about it. Grafting is when you cut off part of one plant and then attach it to another part of a plant that you've cut a little space for, it. and plants will grow and heal kind of like... All living things do. And so you take the one plant and put it into another plant. If you do it right, then they'll fuse together and the branch that you've taken from another plant will start to draw life from the main plant that you've attached it to. And so Paul says that's what's happened here, that you Gentiles have been taken out of the lost nations that were foreign to God and separated from God and now you've been joined to the tree which has its roots, which are the patriarchs and God's promises to Abraham. You can read about that in Galatians chapter 3, about how the promise of Abraham has now come to the Gentiles and that we are united with those who have gone before us in faith. Now, if the tree is the people of God, not the nation of God, but those who are saved, then we want to understand our place in that tree. And he says this, Do not be arrogant towards the natural branches. You who have been grafted in, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And we can rightly say that branches were broken off so that we might be grafted in. Paul concedes that point. He says that's true in verse 20. But don't focus on the fact that well, those people are missing out so that I can get in. That's not the important thing you're supposed to draw here. The important thing you're supposed to focus on is, why were they cut out? And why were you brought in? And it goes back to what we started with. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God dwells on the high and holy hill, but also with those who are lowly and contrite of heart. And so if you start to get spiritually proud... Well, that's exactly the opposite of what brings God's grace and goodness. Spiritual pride has no place in us. When it comes to spiritual things, listen carefully, when it comes to spiritual things, any measure of self-confidence is overconfidence. When it comes to spiritual things, I'm not talking about you know, hitting a baseball or driving a car. You can do those things in the flesh. I'm talking about spiritual things. Loving God, pleasing God. Any self-confidence is overconfidence. Because apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Nothing. So why should you boast? Why should you boast about your spiritual status? Why should you boast about your spiritual privileges? It did not come from you. It has nothing to do with you. It is all of grace. It is all of Christ. So there's no room for boasting. This was the mistake that Jewish people made. They started to boast in their spiritual privileges. They started to boast that they were adopted. They started to look down on the Gentiles. And you know what human nature is? Human nature is when God gives you something good, you start to get proud and you start to look down on other people. When other people have looked down on you, you want to look down on them. When other people despise you, your response is, well, let me think about why they're the ones who should be despised. Why they're the ones who are missing out because they're so foolish and they don't recognize how great I am. Whenever you get hurt, your tendency is to try to villainize the other person to build up your pride. That is human tendency. Paul reminded the Romans at the end of the letter About the collection that he was taking for the saints in Jerusalem. That as Paul went around and he established all these Gentile churches in Corinth and Ephesus and throughout Galatia, all of the places that he traveled, he started taking a collection from those churches to take back to the saints in Jerusalem because he didn't want the Gentiles to forget where did this message come from? Where did this truth come from? Where did this gospel come from? How did you hear about Jesus Christ? It's because of the saints in Jerusalem. And they sent out people to tell you the good news and you owe it all to them. And so Paul says that the churches were pleased to give to the saints in Jerusalem and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, which we have, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Don't become arrogant against the Jews. Instead, be a blessing to the Jews because we have been blessed by the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. Peter was a Jew. All this wonderful truth that you've got, it's from the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. Don't forget it. You're the dogs that is getting the scraps that are falling from the table of the Jews. Jesus said that. And so Paul had to exhort the church in rome because there was this growing tension between the jewish element in the church and the gentile element of the church and he had to tell them you got to live in harmony it's your haughty spirit that is going to cause you not to live in harmony you must associate with the lowly and never be wise in your own sight any self-confidence in spiritual things is overconfidence we don't want to make the same mistake that the Jewish people made at the beginning of their life. God delivers them from Egypt. He destroys the Egyptians. He brings them into the land. He destroys the people of the land. And God has to remind them, it's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you are going in to possess their land. It's not because you were so great that God has grafted you into the olive tree It's because of God's mercy. It's because of God's grace. So don't start getting spiritually high-minded. Paul warns the church in Crete about this. He says, speak evil of no one. Speak evil of no one. Remember that you yourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. You look around at the foolish people in the world, the disobedient people in the world, who are enslaved to lusts and pleasures, and you say, I'm sure glad that I'm better than them. Wrong! I'm so glad that though I was exactly like them, God saved me by mercy and grace, and I want them to be saved by mercy and grace. Don't forget it. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians, another Gentile church, and said, If anyone thinks he stands, take heed, lest ye fall. Well, there's so much here. And I would like to spend more time in it, but let's skip to the end. Our application points. Number one, notice the command in the text to stand firm, to stand fast. You need to look at the reason why the branches were broken off back in verse 20. The branches were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand fast through faith. And so, based on that truth, he goes on and exhorts them to stand fast in faith. He says, if you don't stand fast in faith, you too will be cut off. If you don't continue in God's kindness, in verse 22, you also will be cut off. Now, this makes people ask the question, well, can you lose your salvation? And here, Paul is not talking about personal salvation. He's talking about groups, He's talking about Israel's national election and the groups of the Jews who were cut off who didn't believe. So in the same way, if we Gentiles become arrogant and we don't stand fast in the faith, which is exactly what we're doing, if you look at the church in the world today, we're arrogant, we don't think we could ever do anything wrong, we don't think we could ever betray the gospel, and we're betraying it left and right, making a mockery of Christ. That's what our spiritual leaders in evangelicalism are doing. That's what our seminaries are doing. They're losing it. And their children and grandchildren are going to be cut off. They're not going to be a part of Christ. They're not going to be drawing from the rich root because we've become arrogant spiritually and we don't have that humble heart of trembling before God's word. That cutting off is a a group thing. It's not a, a loss of personal salvation. But even when I say that, The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is not intended to make us complacent as individuals. Just because once saved, always saved is true, that doesn't mean that you don't have to continue to stand firm in the faith. And if you don't stand firm in the faith, then the Bible says you were never saved and you're not going into the kingdom. It's the one who perseveres to the end that will be saved according to Jesus Christ. You will stand firm in the faith or you'll be lost. That is the truth. I believe in the doctrines of Calvinism. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. But we have a proper biblical balance. The Bible warns us about falling away and talks about the real danger of falling away and commands us repeatedly to stand firm in the faith. Paul told the Corinthians, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. He wrote to the Philippians Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Peter wrote at the end of his letter with that same command, I have been writing to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Paul writes to the Ephesians that we take up the whole armor of God so that we may be able to stand firm in the evil day. And he says in the very next verse, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and goes on and talks about the full armor of God. The writer to the Hebrews says that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if, if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And Paul, uh, not Paul, whoever wrote the letter to the Hebrews, says we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And Jesus said in the book of Revelation, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. So don't allow the doctrines of grace to teach you complacency, but instead listen to the commands of scripture and stand firm in the faith. That is how God preserves us. It is God who is at work in us, to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Secondly, I say don't be a comfort Christian. Don't just focus on the kindness of God. Paul says, note the kindness and the severity of God. Don't just note the kindness. If you come to church and you just hear kindness, 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 then the the preacher is failing. But if you come to church and you hear kindness, 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 and severity, 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 that's where you're hearing the word of God the severity of the Great Tribulation, the severity of the Lake of Fire, the severity of God towards Ananias and Sapphira in the early church. Don't be a comfort Christian only focusing on the kindness of God. And then finally, be humble toward the Jews. I want to close with this statement from the Evangelical Lutheran Protestant Church. And I think it's a good statement. I I think this is a very good statement. I'm not all into corporate apologies, but in this case, I think it's, it's a good one. The Jewish people are God's chosen people. Believers should bless them as Scripture says that God will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. The LEPC, the EPC, the GCEPC recant and renounce the works and words of Martin Luther concerning the Jewish people. Prayer is offered for the healing of the Jewish people, their peace and their prosperity. Prayer is offered for the peace of Jerusalem. With deep sorrow and regret, repentance is offered to the Jewish people for the harm that Martin Luther caused and any contribution to their harm. Forgiveness is requested of the Jewish people for these actions. The gospel is to the Jew first and then the Gentile gentiles believers in christ other than jews have been grafted into the vine in christ there is neither jew nor gentile but the lord's desire is that there be one new man from the two for christ broke down the wall of separation with his own body ephesians 2 verses 14 and 15 these lutheran denominations bless israel and the jewish people let us always be a blessing to the jewish people as Paul sought to be.